Good afternoon, this is Gary Kaufman, and uh, welcome to our next installment of the Best Minds in Real Estate interviews with the people who know. Matt Slepin, welcome on board. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing great. I guess I, I, one has to say, one's allowed to say great, and right. one has to say in these awkward, weird, bizarre times. I would, take, I would take the first one alone, but the clarification or the disclaimer works for me. <laughs> Both are important right now, I think. Matt, thank you for joining us today. We uh, started this series of conversations with take their temperature, get their opinions, and kind of listen to how they see the landscape evolving as we go through COVID-19, uh, the, the pre-math, the math, and then the aftermath. So hopefully uh, we'll have you back in a few weeks and see how things are evolving between now and then and continue the dialogue just to keep our listeners uh, informed about uh, what you see and what you're advising your clients to do. So uh, first, before we get started, where do we find you today? Where are you? Uh, I'm a lucky guy. So I'm sitting at a second home. So we live in the Bay Area. So our primary residence is uh, in San Francisco and we have a weekend place. It's now been nine weeks. So we're not quite sure how to do it in Sonoma County. So we're in the town of Glen Ellen in Sonoma County. I'm in my living room. I just saw yesterday a uh, Tommy Bahama a tagline that said, uh, life is a long weekend. <laughs> it's a long weekend and it's Groundhog Day because it's hard to distinguish the days, although they're busy as could be. So Got you're living the long uh, Keep yourself occupied. Sorry, I think yeah. you timed out. What, what do you do to keep yourself occupied and, uh, and healthy and fit? Yeah, so uh, we're, we're lucky to be in the country. So we take a walk every afternoon, like at four to five. We take a four-mile walk. I'm with my wife and my daughter. Uh, my wife's in the business, and uh, Diane Olmsted and my daughter, Callie, is, uh, just finished her first year of city, uh, city planning school at Berkeley. So we've been kind of doing real estate 24-7 between the three of us in different ways. But about four o'clock every afternoon, we take a four or five mile walk. And then uh, about half the mornings, I get on my bike and get to ride up a mountain or something like that because we're surrounded by hills here, which is really nice. Good, good for you. And, and what do you read to stay up to date? Who do you talk to to stay current and uh, informed? Yeah, so, you know, um, so I read the New York Times every day. I read the Wall Street Journal every other day. I listen to podcasts less than I did before because I don't have the walking commute to be listening to the daily New York Times to see what's happening. I'm talking to our clients all the, all the time. So we're you know always problem solving, trying to figure out. And as you know, every conversation right now starts with how are you feeling and where are you, just like this one did. You never go right into business because you're trying to get temperature and trying to be sympathetic and empathetic to what's happening. And then I think the last place I get a lot of information is, like you, as I do podcast interviews with people. So I was just on the phone with someone for an hour and a half, kind of deeply exploring where we are and what's going on. So those are my different methods, it's wonderful. Good. So Matt, you're, you're in the executive search business, a very successful firm focusing on real estate. Uh, take a moment, if you don't mind, just to make sure that all who are listening or watching this uh, have a good sense for what it is that you do, TerraSearch. Sure. So we're executive recruiters. Uh, we're based in San Francisco. Our firm's about 12 years old. We're a boutique firm. We're small. There's 11 of us. 
Uh, we're all over the country. So I have four or five people in the West Coast, four or five people in the East Coast. And we do work across the commercial real estate industry, only in the commercial real estate industry. We do about half of it in the multifamily sector and half in the other food groups. And we work all over the country. So that, that's our business. How, how, did you, how have you had to adjust your operational business model because of COVID-19? Yeah, so first, first observation, I'll, I'll answer that in a moment, but an observation about the business, which is when the global financial crisis hit, now 10 years ago, 11 years ago, our business virtually stopped within a week. So we had 80, 90% of whatever, 20 searches or whatever we had going on, went like this overnight and business virtually stopped. Um, so call that an 80% reduction. I like the 80-20 rule. So this time, maybe 20% reduced, and that's it. So the mandates that we have and the clients that we have and the needs that are out there have not meaningfully changed. So our business has been relatively stable, and I say that cautiously because we don't know what's around the corner. And also, business has slowed. So you take the same, now you take 80% of a number but you slow it, which drags it out a little bit longer. That makes a different number yet again. Um, but, but that's kind of the temperature and the feel. And so our adjustment actually hasn't been as great as you think because we have a relatively small team. The team's largely remote. Turns out we're really able to work remotely, which we always did, but I didn't know it because I went to an office, but now I don't and hasn't changed much. Um, and then the last thing is the biggest adjustments with clients. So adjustment A is things are slow as molasses to me. B, you have to be sensitive to folks. If you make a cold call, we're all cautious on cold calls. They feel like they're tone deaf. Hey, you want this job? You interested in this? I don't know who you are, but like, call me back, man. <laughs> Those calls don't exist right now. And then with clients, how do you place people who they might not have met in person. And you could do a lot over Zoom, but not everything over Zoom. So those are all topics we could talk about, but those, those adjustments have been made. So, so far, you, you may not be getting a lot of new assignments, but the old workload, the pipeline did not, people didn't stop the searches that were uh, running with you. And it's taken longer to execute, conclude, and finish a search. Uh, have you been able to finish any searches in the last uh, two months? We have. And, and also new business has been about normal, maybe slightly lower, maybe 80% of normal as well. Really? So the pipeline work, it's harder to get the pipeline to convert into now right. because people aren't in such a rush. Although I, I'd argue that there may be some reasons to be in a, in a move, move forward position. Um, so, so that's comment number one. And we have closed several searches over the last month or so where interviews have been somewhat remote. Terrific. Yep. So why do you think this is so different than it was back in the GFC? Well, GFC was real estate driven. So that's number one. Uh, number two is about half or a little bit more of our works in the apartment business. And there are sectors of real estate that are more stable than other sectors and sectors that will undergo a revolution have a requirement of revolution more than other sectors. So I'm guessing hospitality and the mall business are in need of a revolution. 
offices stabilized mostly because long-term leases kind of buffer it somewhat in some way. But so those sectors are more hard hit, hit more deeply. And then the apartment sector, residential, industrial, those sectors will sail through with lots of changes and lots of pain, but they're planning, right? You know, people are going to live in apartments. You know, you have to operate apartments. You know, you have to do that well. Has anything changed in terms of the qualifications or the background or the kinds of people that uh, employers are looking for today? That hasn't changed yet. Um, I think, but there's, so I think that, yes, what people are looking for today is different than five years ago. Is it different than two months ago? No. Right. I'm waiting to see if someone's going to hire a chief medical officer, you know, companies with heavy operations. And again, think of apartments, think of hospitality, where yeah. the operational side of the business is, someone used the word wet the other day, which I think has meaning now. But if you're in contact with the human population and you're in a potentially wet job, then what does that look like? And how do you protect your employees? How do you protect your tenants? If the tenants are human beings or tenants are companies, how do you do that? And we don't have that expertise in the real estate world. We have sensitivity to it. How are we going to adjust to that? So I think there's some people things coming around that. And then who could flex around those topics or other interesting things that I know are needed. Flex right. is needed. We need lots of flex in the business. So same question applying to the other side of the equation, right? The talent. Is there any, are you noting any changes in uh, the kind of people that are now contemplating a move or uh, compared to what you would have seen in February and January of the same of this year? Yeah, once again, I, I'm not, I think of things longer term than immediate. We have had less of, them, of an immediate number of resumes coming in than we used to. Maybe it's a third more, what we call them unsolicited resumes. It's a word in the search business. So I get a lot of these every day. And that lot has not changed significantly yet. It might change. So maybe it's up to 25, 30%. We don't keep a record of that. And those are the incoming people and they're looking for jobs because they may have just lost their job. So what are those people looking for? They're looking for a job. <laughs> but people who are, you're gonna yank them out to make a move because they're happily employed, that's a deeper question. And does this pause and does this recession and does this market turn say to someone midway through their career, okay, now's a moment I can pause and think and who do I want to be with for the part of my career where I'm going to make a difference? Mm -hmm. And is the platform where I am or the platform I'm going to potentially go to one that will align with my values and will align with the needs of my wallet for wealth creation in this next decade? And those are questions we're asking everybody all the time. So a lot of CEOs that I talk to do mention that when they think about opportunities uh, in the next few months as a result of COVID-19, they certainly think about real estate investment opportunities, assets, uh, loans, et cetera. But they also think about talent. What are you seeing? What kind of talent is being currently um, released to the market by virtue of layoffs and, and, uh, and, and, right, and downsizing? Again, I'm going to answer the question sideways instead of directly. Because the talent that's being released is not necessarily the talent that you want to have. Right, so the most easily released or something that might have been released anyhow. 
I'm being rude to all these people who are losing their jobs, which isn't fair. But, you know, you release low-hanging fruit or you release when you might have a duplicate of something that you don't need two of in a time where you have to cut back. The deep question is what kind of talent are people seeking today or before and how does that differ? So just like I said, the candidate looking to what company do I want to join where I can make my mark in the next decade? The companies are coming to us and say, okay, who do we want to be in this chair for the next decade of our company right. in a CFO search or head of development or one, you know, whatever that role is. And then who's going to last and who's going to take us to really great places? Who are we going to have fun with? Where's the cultural fit? And I'm thinking flexibility again, maybe one of those words that matters, you know, not someone with a rigid approach to this because we have to learn to move. We, and certainly in the next two, three years, we don't know what it's going to look like. Right. When you think about um, the world of, uh, of, of talent availability and, and talent requirements, we always think about uh, hiring potential new managers, people who are now number two or number three in an organization that may be same size or bigger to the organization that's looking for uh, a leader. And I'm thinking specifically about companies that find themselves with a C-suite opening for one reason or another and no viable successor from within, which obviously is regrettable. If you did a good job running your company, you wouldn't have that opening. And if you did, you would have a successor in place. But you found yourself in a place where you don't have that and you call Matt. So um, are, are, are organizations beginning to feel that dislocation coming the dislocation meaning that the number two, number three person is saying that the one or two people ahead of them aren't going anyplace and therefore they're gonna start looking or the organization looking into their ranks and kind of doing the assessment you described a moment ago. You know, my number one guy or woman may be at the end of their career, maybe it's time to move them on. I don't wanna lose my number two. Let me promote number two and deal with number one uh, and create um, a, a rotation into the marketplace of either number ones that are being counseled out or number twos that are uh, bypassing or, or taking the initiative. Are you beginning to see any of that yet? Absolutely. And, so, and that's our normal business. I think it's the sweet spot for what we get to do as recruiters. So it's the, the pleasure in finding a role player to fit four levels down in an organization to be an asset manager or a project manager. That's interesting stuff. We do that. That's bread and butter. But when we're looking for a leader of a functional area in a company or someone in the C-suite, that's, that's where we get to shine. It's really fun. W one comment to your comment is it's not a bad thing necessarily when there is not an internal successor. And one of the risks of a company where there's this internal successor to every senior role, I think that company's done some bad planning because the internal successors, uh, Inbreeding is the wrong word here, but it's the one I want to use. But what you want is you want outside perspectives. You want market perspectives to come into a company. So I'd argue that, you know, one out of every four of those senior roles should be filled by someone coming in, bringing a different perspective. Fit's going to be a challenge, but the value of other perspectives from within the industry to challenge the others is a really good thing. I will do you one better than that, Matt. I would argue that for most, if not all, C-suite positions, even though you have a successor in, internally, you ought to run a search. You ought to run a search oh. to make sure that 
you are not making a mistake and that your candidate, even though they've homegrown and therefore have a lot of institutional knowledge perhaps, are still the best candidate for that position at any given point in time. That feels self-serving if I had said that, so I'm happy you said it. <laughs> I'll totally what? agree. The other thing that's interesting to what you said is, and I'll give an example of a client that we're signing a contract with an hour, we are in an hour, uh, or an hour ago. Um, a lot of this is about generational shift. And one question will be, will there be more, will this hasten generational shift because people just don't want to go through this again, right? People in their 60s, or 70s, whatever it is. And in one company that we're about to do some work with, there is generational shift going on. And the next generation of leaders doesn't want one of the functional folks from the old team. They want their own person and the guy's okay in that functional area, but they prefer to see what the market will tell them in terms of a new person to upgrade that function and to be a great colleague for them and more like-minded to who that next generation of leaders is. And that stuff doesn't get stopped. It may be hastened again by the downturn because let's get, get these things done. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's look forward a bit. Uh, what do you think is going to, two years from today when we look back, uh, what will we say, you know, the way we used to do business back in 2019, early 2020, that's gone. This is the new way. What's different in the uh, executive search, the composition, uh, of the C-suite uh, and, and things of that nature, not including the chief health officer. <laughs> um, so I'm a bit of an idealist. So, and, I, and, and I'm not a good investor and I wear my heart on my sleeve. So I'm just gonna preface this comment with that. And I'm gonna mash the answer also up with a different question that you had on your reading list, on the, your question list, which is how might the capital markets change? So I'll, so I'll put those together. And my hope for the industry is that we start taking a longer term approach to the business and a longer term approach to investments and less trading and more long term development, more long term ownership. And I think that might have some wonderful effects on the industry and then the industry's role in our society. Um, because, again, as an idealist, one of the things we see and enlightened self-interest suggests that landlords should not necessarily be viewed in the popular culture as the bad guy. And developers shouldn't necessarily be viewed as the bad guy. Our job in this industry is to be good corporate citizens as developers and landlords and investors. And the behaviors that we follow will be invest the behaviors I hope that do not invite rent strikes and rent control laws that don't work. Right. So I'm hoping that the behaviors with a longer term perspective on investment will then have operating companies and operating platforms approaching the business in those ways, mm -hmm. which plays into what we do because we think about good, stable, strong, industry leading kind of business platforms. Does that change your business at all? Uh, it doesn't. I think it, you know, I hope it helps our business because if companies look for long-term roles and long-term players, then what they understand is that the, their culture matters, how they treat their clients matters. Um, having the best technology in their industry 
you know, being at the top of the curve in terms of best practices. And those things play into what we like to talk about in the human capital world, not just, okay, here's a, we need a body, but what's human capital mean within the world of real estate? I think human capital is, is becomes more important as those trends go in the direction that I'm hoping they do. So if you think about your, your clients, the people you work with, um, who do you consider to be one of the better uh, thinkers, implementers, particularly when it comes to human capital strategies, right? Who does a terrific job, but if you wanted to do a bit of a case study and see if you can reverse engineer what they're doing, that would be a good place to go. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. So I, I, I thought about this question because you, you said you would ask it, and I, and I don't either like to point at specific individuals or specific companies, so I get to point to the podcast, right? And, and who have we interviewed who blew me away in terms of an approach to thinking about the business in a way that I think is exemplary? So that may be one way to answer this question. So a couple things come to mind for me. And one is uh, there's a company in the multifamily business, Camden Property Trust. And one of my interviews with Keith Oden, the co-president, co-CEO of the company, and they talked about in the podcast when they developed the company, they wanted to be one of the best companies in the industry. And they wanted to, then they found the pathway to become part of the fortune 100 best places to work year after year after year. And when a company has a goal like that, then I think they can achieve extraordinary things. So what I see in the industry and what I really admire are those companies, particularly REITs, because they're able to take a long-term view of the industry. It's the same theme that I'm talking about. Both institutional capital could take a long-term view of the industry and a long-term view of their team, and REITs should be able to take a long-term view of their team in the industry and always raising the bar. So I think there's more examples of those kind of companies across the board. And then how do the non-institutional companies get to play off of that? and go after those behaviors? I, I think it's a really, really interesting question. It is a good question. And then I wanna kinda pull on that string a little bit. Uh, sorry, I think I timed out. So I, I wanted to pull, pull on that string uh, a little bit, map and explore it a bit more. A moment ago, you said that you anticipate one of the changes in the industry to be uh, that there, there's gonna be less emphasis and maybe fewer players that are in the rotation of capital business, a trading strategy, I think you call it. Uh, and more players who are going to focus on long-term hold and operations, relationship between assets, with assets, with tenants, and hopefully with employees. So one of, the, one of the things that when I talk to CEOs of entrepreneurial companies who come from the trading mentality, the, the merchant builder, if you will, they have developed a culture and a compensation plan that is very much focused on uh, buying, building, adding value, stabilizing, selling. So in part, you can return the money to the investor with a lot of profit. And in part, you can take the promote interest and distribute it as profits. And that's the incentive that they use to attract what they believe to be the best and brightest, right? Even when the company wants to transition from that mode to the more REIT-like mode, right? Of build, stabilize, and hold they still have to go through the value creation stage. Yep. REITs have found a way to compensate people uh, without having a promote payment at the end of every stabilization effort. 
but private companies are having a bit more of a challenge there. So I know that your business is, in is not compensation consulting, but you do deal with the placement of talent where some of the talent has the option to go route A versus route B. How do you think that game ends up? What is the, uh, what's your advice to a, a developer or, or a, uh, an owner of a development company that is trying to make the transformation from that, how it used to be to where he wants to be with respect to managing talent and the compensation of that talent to attract them, retain them, and have the longevity that he hopes to get or she hopes to get from the talent? Well, that's a, that's a brilliant question and funny was it was like, uh, what my wife, my daughter and I talked about on our hike yesterday. <laughs> I swear to God. So this is our four mile walk and we got into this precise conversation. So first of all, it's, it's a goal and an ambition for the industry to be longer term in its perspective. It's not, I don't know what's going to happen. You're the predictor of these things more than me, but, but I hope the behaviors do move in that direction. So that's number one. Number two, I'm just adding some comments to what you said to the things that a merchant builder might care about because one's going to be risk management. Like risk management may be more important than maximizing profits ever because you always have to make sure you're doing a good job on the risk side. But the other thing that we talked about on our hike yesterday because you'd think that merchant building would be the opposite of my suggestion about where I think the industry should move. But one thing that we have seen is that the major merchant builders, I'm thinking the apartment business specifically, they build as high a quality project as a REIT does, even though the REIT's going to hold it forever, because those behaviors and those interests have become aligned long-term and best practices have become aligned long-term in a very different way than they were 25 years ago. We could slap it up, cross your fingers, and hope you're going to make a sale and get out of the deal. And since these companies have lasted for a long time, companies that you know well, like Mill Creek or Wood Partners, who were on the podcast last week, or others, those companies, their reputation matters, and they won't be able to do that next deal if they're shoddy, which is not the right word. But So that can't happen. Wealth creation really matters in the real estate industry. It doesn't matter for everybody in the real estate industry, but maybe people listening to this podcast are those who, for whom it does matter more. And you have to be able to create enough wealth to be able to retire happily and fully at the end of a long career. And what does that mean for people in different functions within the real estate business for that kind of creation of net worth? And is that a humongous number or a medium number or a small number? And in our searches, those are the questions we're always asking. And we can't, it's really hard to recruit people to a senior role in a real estate business where they can't create net worth. So it's an essential component of this. And it's an essential component if there's a long-term ownership and boy, more net worth has actually been created in long-term ownership of real estate, I believe, than has in the trading side of real estate over time. That's where fortunes have really been made. So how can you access that or get a piece of that pie or a synthetic piece of that pie? Really important. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that is the issue, right? The issue is that maybe you can create wealth, but the wealth is sort of locked up in the asset and it's not very portable, especially when you have a sliver of the equity or the ownership of that asset or the portfolio as a, as a particular, as an executive. So um, what are some creative ways that owners are using to provide liquidity for those who, you know, come to the point where they want to have a second home or they've got to send the kid to college or right. they, they, they need some uh, liquidity out of that wealth. They don't necessarily can't afford to wait for it to come to fruition in 20, That's 30 right. years from today. 
Well, so what, and of course, it's funny, I was on the call with a client just last week on this particular subject, and a percentage of a number usually works. You can align interest around a percentage of a something. And um, so it, it, percentage of something, if you just created net worth on a appraised value of an asset that started out pre-development at 10 million bucks and now it's 100 million bucks, you just made 90 million bucks through our effort. And if you're sharing five, 10% of that with the team that made that happen with your capital and thank God your salaries, then that kind of seems fair. And I think a small percentage of a large number, even an infinitely large, an infinite number is a very fair approach and should be. It's funny, I did a search some years ago for a company that wanted to create a multi-billion dollar investment platform and the company wanted to pay the creator, the, the builder of that platform, a base and a bonus. And I said, that won't work. Anyone capable of creating a multi-billion dollar investment platform needs a percentage of that, percentage of the wealth creation in order to be incentivized. It's not fair otherwise. You will not succeed. And we didn't get there with that particular client. And they never got there with the business they were trying to create. But that's human nature. This, this yeah. should be percentages are good, easy ways to think about things. If you're a C-suite member of a public company, you can uh, sell stock, you can uh, leverage your stock, you can uh, borrow from the company. The different ways to pull money out. Uh, when you have a uh, minority interest in a portfolio of assets that are privately held, that those liquidity options aren't really available, right? So how do you advise your clients to form liquidity or create liquidity for their employees, for the key uh, team players. Yeah. Well, I, I think we've seen it in businesses. I'm thinking investment managed business all the time. Sorry, I'm moving a alert here, but I think taking an occasional appraisal valuation every five, you know, liquidity events that non-liquidity events of true ups every five years or every some number of period of time, as you would do in a fund, but this is a synthetic liquid uh, event. Right. Do an appraisal and you true up and you get a percentage of the value created. So you have to, but, but you have to create liquidity. You have to borrow money or recapitalize. So, okay, I understand what you're saying. Thank you. So um, we talked a lot about what's going to be different, how things are going to change. And it seems like at the moment you, you, you are not yet uh, ready to declare these are the things that are going to change. But um, when you think about the kinds of companies that are going to be the winners of the game, what do you think are the characteristics of those kinds of companies? Those who will come out in two, three years stronger from they are today. And what may be some of the characteristics of those that may not be quite as fortunate? Well, it's a, it's a really good question. So I'll, I'll stick with some of the themes that we've talked about already. I, I, I get to say, which is fun. You know, I think the the better players, better player, what does better player mean? So I think companies that treat capital well, I think companies that treat their customers well, I think companies that treat their employees well, will survive the best over time. I think those companies that strive to in their sector or in their geography 
be the best in the business and aspire to be the best in the business and know what that looks like. Because a lot of people think they're good because they can look at themselves and they're pretty good how they are. But that doesn't do the trick, right? So who are those best players? And, and what are those characteristics around operations, around development, around deployment of capital, around being good corporate citizens with long-term thinking? Um, I think those will be the basics of the future. They're more resilient, right? They made it through. And the other thing we've heard through this crisis is transparency and the benefit of transparency internally into investors, really critical. When you have leaders who aren't transparent, they can't lead. We've seen it. I get political, so I won't go there. But, you know, it's across the board. So I think that more than ever before. And you can't hide anymore. You can't hide from Glassdoor. And you can't hide from Facebook and LinkedIn information. And you can't hide from the truth. You can't hide for how many deaths there are from COVID. These things are out there. So you might as well be as transparent as you possibly can and then be a leader around that information. So I think companies are that way too. I think a lot of this crisis that we're dealing with now is accelerating trends that were already in the works and making, maybe accentuating some aspects of them, uh, but certainly kind of fasting forward into uh, a number of things. So to wrap it up, Matt, I'm curious, when you think about the last 60 days, which is the California, the duration of the California uh, uh, work at home on nine weeks, I guess, what has surprised you so far? So first of all, when we started the 60 days, I figured it was a couple few weeks. I couldn't imagine right, being what's like eight weeks working from home. It, just, it was on, that didn't make any sense to me. Um, the, the second thing is that the wall between personal and work has kind of fallen a bit and both within companies and between companies and with clients, right? So we're all human more than we used to be. I wonder if the day, since we're seeing each other always now without a tie on, are we gonna go back to wearing a tie in the office and need that to go see a client again because we've seen them in their living rooms. The other thing I've seen um, is like in New York, I think that leading real estate companies are all talking to each other to figure out together the best practices around letting people back in their office building or letting their doorman interact with the clientele. Mm -hmm. So the industry is working together in a way that we really have to do. We right. can't take this on separately. I think those are things that surprise me. And again, I'm a bit of an idealist, so I like to see those things. Um, so I'd say that. What do you think is going to surprise people a month from today? Uh, that we're still here. So I think a month from today, the doors are half open. But the place that it's open to, when you go to the restaurant, you may not want to go there. When you get to, you're allowed to go to a bar again. There was a picture in the Wall Street Journal this morning of someone sitting at a bar in San Francisco, I guess, or what they're planning. And the barkeep is sitting there with a mask on. And the guests are sitting there on a bar stool, but between them is a plastic divider wall. And so you get to drink in your little cubicle, which looks not very enticing. I think the doors are going to open. A lot of people say, okay, we're back. But I don't think we're back to normal for the two to three years it's going to take for COVID to be over. And so this could be a long sale before we get to a stable place. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see how we work together and what happens. 
And then what's going to be really interesting to me is which investments are made in behaviors in this semi-open stage that are persistent investments and that are just what you said a moment ago, the trends that were going to happen anyway around information, around security, uh, around transportation. I'm going to be really curious about that stuff. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot that will develop in the next few months or years. And uh, I, 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 we know the future is never a replica of the past. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to observe how much of how things will change in the future will be simply along the trajectory that we could have probably plotted out before COVID-19 versus a radical shift one way or the other. Time will tell. Absolutely true. I bet that cities don't go away. This was on my podcast this morning that we discussed. Okay, do cities go away? Does globalization go away? Does transportation go away? Do relationships go away? Do our social problems change? Those are really interesting how this will affect that and how our industry will impact that stuff. Do cities go away? You think they No. Do? No, although I think, you know, secondary, if that's the right word, cities become more attractive. But does that make New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco go away? No. We have to evolve, but they don't go away. Well, the way we do business and particularly the face-to-face -face aspects of it, will that change meaningfully, not in three months, but in three years? I think it will have changed. Yeah, because I think the next generation will be used to this. They will have learned their muscle memory from this kind of experience. You and I grew up in, we go to ULI, we go hang out with people, we talk to people. If you see them enough, you become friends. Yeah. And I don't know that will be the same going forward. So I think there will be some evolution around that. I don't know what it's gonna look like. So should I order plexiglass partitions for my conference rooms? <laughs> I hope not. And when COVID's over, before the next crisis, you would take those plexiglass partitions down anyhow, because it could be a period you're gonna feel really safe. So we will go back to something that's more like the old normal, maybe lower frequency, but still relatively close to the older. older I think normal. you go back, I think you do, except that your phone is gonna have a warning when someone, you know, when the next pandemic comes, or I'm gonna mash up pandemics and terrorist attacks, because I think they have some of the same solutions. When the next bombing happens, something's going to alert us to hunker down or another pandemic comes, we're going to have the tools at hand to quickly distance and maybe quickly distance in very specific geographies. That's going to be really interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, that's a mind-expanding thought. So why don't we leave it on that? Matt, thank you for thank joining Thank you very us. much. I look forward to having you back and you absolutely proved that you are thoughtful, insightful, informed and super interesting. Thank you for your cool. time. That was great. Thank you very much. Be well.